It's no secret that working offshore is a challenging occupation for both men and women. Doesn't matter what your gender is. If you go to sea, you're going to have hard times. It's also a great career for so many. And those great experiences are what keep people coming back and back. However, handling those challenges can sometimes be frustrating and difficult, and you might feel like you don't know what to do. At Women Offshore, we believe that the lessons learned in our careers that are wrapped up in these sea stories that we share are important. And so we want to share what we've experienced so that people listening, especially the women who are trying to get into the industry, can take those lessons learned and hold them for future use. Today, you're going to hear a story from a woman who experienced a challenge. And actually, the voice that you'll hear is not hers. We don't want you to think about who she is or anything about her specifically. We want you to focus on the story itself. Later on in the show, you'll hear from a consultant as she dissects the story and talks about how to handle the situation. In the end, you'll hear what actually transpired at the end of the story. This is the Women Offshore Podcast. I'm your host, Ali Cedeno, a mariner and founder of Women Offshore. Women Offshore is a 501c3 nonprofit organization supporting a diverse workforce on the water. I've been sailing as a mate on an ocean-going cargo ship. On board, we have two gravity davit lifeboats, and I'm the officer in charge of one of the boats during abandoned ship events and drills. As the officer in charge, I take a full muster of the crew members assigned to the lifeboat. Then I assign specific tasks to each crew member in preparation for lowering the boat. It's important that the same people are not assigned to the same roles in every drill. You never know who will be able to make it to the lifeboats in an emergency, so it's important that everyone is familiar with all the tasks involved. During an abandoned ship drill recently, the lifeboat was lowered and everything went smoothly. When hoisting the boat back up, I assigned roles to each crew member again. One of the last tasks was cranking the boat the rest of the way into its cradle. Hand cranking the lifeboat into its final position has never been a task most people want to take on. It's probably everyone's least favorite task because it's the most labor intensive. Throughout my career, I've seen people move away or even roll their eyes when asked to do it. So I assigned the task of hand cranking the boat into its cradle to a crew member who then refused to do it. He said, I don't do that stuff. Instantly, I was pretty irritated by his refusal. I said, you're here to assist as directed, so you will assist as directed. He responded with, no, I don't have to do that kind of stuff. I didn't sign up for this. I said calmly, okay, we'll have to talk to the captain about this later. He then cussed at me to show how unhappy he was. I did my best to move forward with the drill and ignore him. I looked over at the guy next to him, telling him to crank the boat into its cradle. To my surprise, that crew member also refused. Another no. I thought my head was going to explode. In all my years of sailing, I have never heard anyone tell an officer no during a lifeboat drill. In that moment, I was angry. 
I am here with Erica DeRemo, an experienced professional in offshore oil and gas and CEO and founder of Two Peers Consulting, a public benefit corporation that is focused on workplace dynamics and supporting women in the workplace. Erica has been a long-term supporter of women offshore even leading workshops at our conferences to empower women to overcome challenging situations. Welcome, Erica. What's going on here? Why are these men refusing to crank the boat into position? I think this is such a great example of um, this type of scenario because we encounter this in so many more subtle shades, but rarely do we get you know, such a highlight um, that's so clear that we can uh, we can address. There are likely a few things going on here. I think that while our main protagonist was probably, you know, caught a bit by surprise uh, by this reaction, I would assume that the antagonists in this story probably had thought about this playing out well in advance, um, at least implicitly, if not explicitly. So as we know very well in dangerous environments such as offshore work or in the military, that hierarchy and, you know, conformance culture are just supremely important. They're important for the entire safety of the crew. They're important for the cohesiveness of the group. So these individuals were really testing boundaries. They were testing whether the person in charge was truly in control. And they were doing it by making a public display, which means they were also playing a power game. So I often talk about the invisible org chart that you can sometimes discover by observing internal team dynamics. You know, even if somebody doesn't necessarily have a supervisor title, if everyone in the room kind of defers to them on the the heavy questions, then you know that they really do have a position in that invisible org chart. So it sounds like these folks were either trying to modify or maybe solidify an already existing invisible org chart in which they could perhaps increase their power relative to our main character. So they were likely hoping to throw her off, you know, make her flustered and either have her back down, which could be a sign of weakness, or they could maybe get her to escalate to a point where she came across as being unreasonable or shaken or just emotional or irrational. So all of these outcomes would basically undermine her standing in that invisible org chart and possibly eventually in the real org chart um, if she didn't have the trust and respect of the crew. That is so interesting. And I wonder what can be done in a situation like this. What are her options? Well, we kind of discussed two options just now, you know, backing down or escalating. And those are certainly available. And while both of those could very much be warranted, they usually aren't very effective. I'm going to give a caveat here, though. You know, we really need to understand our context and our surroundings before we react or respond in a situation. So one size does not fit all, even in this scenario. We at Two Peers, we teach this a lot in our workshops and we really emphasize it, that before responding, you really need to establish whether or not you're safe. So are you in any sort of physical danger? You know, what are the, what's the state of mind of the people around you? And I'd give very different advice depending on whether this were, you know, in the workplace where everyone might be maybe under increased pressure, but generally in control of themselves. Or, you know, if this were in the parking lot of a bar after a happy hour gets out of hand, you know, very different 
scenarios. So if you're not safe, if you don't have that physical safety, then the best advice is to de-escalate and just exit. If, however, you've established that you're physically safe, you don't you don't feel for your physical well-being, and if people are not in immediate danger to warrant, you know, raising your voice and shouting to get somebody's attention, then I highly advise nipping this behavior right in the bud. I like to use the analogy of self-defense. When you're doing a self-defense class, you know, they'll tailor what's best for you based on who you are. So if you're five foot two and 120 pounds, you'll have a different set of tactics that will be more effective for you than somebody who's, you know, six feet tall with a really athletic build. So similarly, we should play to our strengths. So if your strength is humor, you can lean on that. Um, I'll sometimes snap a joke to remind somebody that their attempt to embarrass me just didn't work and we're going to move on, even if inside I'm I'm pretty angry. If your strength is compassion, then you can leverage that too. You can try to ask questions to understand this person's motivations and why they feel their behavior is acceptable or why they're feeling threatened. And both of those really do come from a place of confidence. Unfortunately, in a situation like this, though, where things are moving quite quickly, you don't really have time to be asking questions like that. Um, it's not a scenario where you want to be joking because, you know, these individuals are threatened the hierarchy, they're threatening the cohesiveness of the group, but ultimately they're threatening the entire team's safety. So you kind of have a narrow band that you can operate in. And where they're trying to test the person in charge and see whether they're truly in control, the most important thing you can do is to quickly just reestablish that you are indeed in control and set a very firm boundary. So it's a simple thing to say, you know, assert your control and set a boundary, but it's a very thin tightrope that we have to walk. And oftentimes our bodies can just give us away. They can give our true feelings or our true anger away just, you know, from a quivering voice or sweating or flushed cheeks. So kind of the first step in all these situations, when you feel that adrenaline rush um, come through your system as you go into fight or flight mode, is to just take a deep breath. So do your best to get your head into logic mode and then kind of choose your words. So I used to repeat the mantra to myself of low and slow when I was in situations like this offshore. Because for me and for many women, as we get stressed, the pitch and pace of our voice starts to escalate and it sends signals to people that we're maybe not in control. So this is one reason that it's helpful to use your natural style, as mentioned earlier, just, you know, within the bounds that the context allows. She shares with us how she is feeling. Should she leave the emotions out of her response? So I think it's a really great question. Um, and I'll revisit the premise that you know, particularly in the workplace, we are often faced with the option of being right or being effective. So should we as women be able to display our very reasonable, very justified anger without being minimized and sidelined as being overly emotional or irrational or hysterical or the B word? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. The gaslighting of women who display anger is very widespread and it's very destructive. And these kind of biases, whether conscious or unconscious, truly rob us of valuable voices and viewpoints. They negatively affect our well-being. So with that established, that you do have the right to feel anger and you are right in feeling angry in many cases, now we can talk about being effective. Aside from some very specific situations, I'd really generally advise against stating out loud that you are angry. It just distills you down into one emotion. If you believe, however, that communicating your state of mind is going to be valuable for the interaction, which in some cases it, it really is, then you can name your underlying reaction more specifically rather than just anger. So it can be disappointment. You're feeling frustration. You're feeling exhaustion. In many cases, just expressing how you're feeling can really de-escalate certain situations and start rebuilding that psychological safety and the empathy that can be helpful in these situations through showing vulnerability. Because honestly, every time we either display or communicate our feelings, we are 
kind of performing an act of courageous vulnerability. And if you're more interested in that, Brene Brown's book, Daring Greatly, is a great kind of examination of vulnerability as strength. So this is usually best suited for well-functioning teams that um, have had an escalation. However, in this specific scenario, I wouldn't necessarily recommend it because they are looking to exploit vulnerability here, and it's probably best to not give them much rope to do it. So I do strive for a world where we can openly emote and be vulnerable in the workplace and not face negative consequences for it. And until that reality exists, I think we just have to decide how to be most effective in our current circumstances. So one tactic that avoids discussing emotions explicitly um, and avoids kind of delving into blame or negativity is to just state your expectations. So state them clearly and out loud and then confirm people's buy-in. So the fact that people have not met your expectations can usually go unsaid. People can see that themselves. Um, the thing I love about this tactic, especially for women, is that they're not, you know, asking nicely. They're not making a request and they're also not demanding. You're just openly relying on your colleagues' professionalism and pride and you're reestablishing the power dynamic by kind of implicitly stating that your expectations matter. So when I felt frustrated or disappointed offshore, I really found this tactic hugely valuable. And you allow people to respond with whether or not they think your expectation is reasonable or not. So you're allowing them to actively buy into the larger goal. So for some tactical goals like, you know, complete X work and Y time, maybe it's not a reasonable expectation. However, expecting people to follow command and control in an emergency drill situation, that's clearly a reasonable expectation. And it would be pretty bold and detrimental for someone to openly disagree with that expectation. So they wouldn't be suited for offshore life if they couldn't handle command and control. And when people are lashing out like they did here, it's usually be because they somehow feel threatened. And so this can help frame the situation and expectations in broader terms, you know, related to the team. Answer your question specifically about whether or not she should express anger, I would say maybe. And there are options that we've described here for, you know, how to express that. So what about the people standing around? What's their position in this situation, especially since they may not have authority? So the people standing around may not have, you know, explicit authority in an official capacity, but they can certainly exert peer pressure by, you know, firstly, not celebrating that type of behavior. In many cases, though, the bystanders really are just watching and calculating what this means for them. So they're going to be thinking about how they'll be impacted based on the outcome of this, you know, confrontation. So perhaps those two individuals um, described here were already bullies, and maybe there's folks in the crowd who might be silently cheering her on, um, and she can set an example for them. Or perhaps they have a vested interest in that sort of invisible org chart and are actually rooting for these two guys to successfully undermine her. One thing that might seem helpful but is actually not very productive is for someone in the crowd to step in and speak on her behalf, whether that's a um, a woman or a man stepping in to speak on her behalf. It really doesn't matter. What they could have done, perhaps, would say something that reaffirms the team aspect of the group. So, you know, hey, we're better than this, or you're putting us all at risk when you don't take these drills seriously. But ideally, she would handle this on her own because it's a test of her, right? They're testing her. And by doing that, she'll show the entire crew that this won't stand and she's not going to play these games. Is there ever a time when showing anger is appropriate? It's a tough one. And I'm kind of struggling to think of a scenario in the workplace where it's going to be effective to 
explicitly show anger. Ironically, showing anger can have negative effects on sort of both sides of the power equation. So if someone's just trolling you and they want to get a response and you're giving it to them, then you're sort of giving up a little bit of power. They they wanted to exert an impact on you because it increases their power. Alternatively, showing anger can also negatively affect trust from those who maybe might not be challenging you. You know, the quieter voices in the room, if they see you lashing out, even if it's completely justified, and if this is just an outlier and not your normal behavior, that's what will stick in people's memory, probably to an unfair extent. So it can affect trust in the organization. If you're really struggling to just keep a lid on it and you know, in some cases we're super sleep deprived or under a high amount of pressure or whatever. There's a variety of factors that can affect our ability to kind of keep it under control. Then I just advise stepping away if you possibly can. Obviously, that's not always going to be an option. Like in this case, she couldn't just step away and take a breather. The drill had to go on. But many times we do have that option. We can just take a time out. And there's there's sort of a power in that by saying, I'm not going to continue this conversation right now because it's not going to be productive. So let's regroup in 30 minutes. Throughout my career, I noticed that there is a difference in how men and women's anger is viewed. And men, when they're angry, it seems to be a lot more accepted than when a woman gets angry. Can you dissect that for us? Why is anger viewed differently for men versus women? Well, I probably can't do it justice without turning your podcast into like an epic. But um, I think that this is just a fundamental kind of deep-seated question. Firstly, I, I just want to recommend there's two books that address this specifically. One is called Rage Becomes Her, and it's by Soraya Chamali. And the other one is called Good and Mad by Rebecca Traster. They're both investigations of, you know, women's anger, how it manifests in society and how it's viewed by society. So society's framed women as caretakers and as being in supportive roles throughout much of history. And so when a woman displays anger, she sort of strays from this depiction and it can cause some major cognitive dissonance. So she's showing that she has agency, right? She has power in displaying anger. And we don't always feel comfortable with women even displaying their power. So for many people, particularly men who maybe weren't subjected to kind of playground girl politics, the closest association that they'll have for a woman's anger is probably from a family environment, from either their mother or their partner. And that type of anger strikes deeply. You know, it kind of hits up against that fear of abandonment. And if it's in a public setting where a woman displays her anger, then it could threaten some people's, you know, very unfortunate beliefs that a woman should be taking a secondary position. So her anger ends up threatening his standing. And sometimes individuals with really deep-seated insecurities will cling to whatever can give them a sense of power. So we should remind ourselves of that. Sometimes when we're coming up against these situations, a lot of times this comes from weakness when men or even other women are dismissive of women's anger. It's usually coming from weakness or insecurity. So that, you know, perceived or hoped for dominance over women um, might be the last thing that they're clinging to for their sense of self. And you'll notice that that situation becomes even more complex for women of color who are then battling even additional layers of bias. So on the one hand, they're written off as a stereotype, you know, the angry black woman or the fiery Latina. On the other hand, they're challenging their perceived place in the hierarchy. And there are particularly damaging stereotypes about Asian women being, you know, like less assertive or not displaying anger. So when an Asian woman shows anger, they're challenging all sorts of biases. 
One easy reason that women's anger is commonly dismissed is just the sheer convenience of it. If you can dismiss somebody's anger, you don't have to question your own behaviors and actions that led to that reaction. If you can write off that anger as irrational, then we don't need to worry about being the cause of it or changing our own behaviors. And people will jump through some, you know, incredible mental hoops to avoid feeling shame or failure. So it's much easier to call her crazy and blissfully move on, you know, unchanged. And it's not just men that do this either. Women do it as well. We write off other women. And frankly, we need to stop it. It can feel great in the moment. It can, you know, make us feel better then. Um, But we're just all undermining ourselves if we don't call it out or even worse if, you know, we propagate those behaviors ourselves. So with all that said... How can we work together to change the perception of women's anger? I think the first step is to use our vocabulary to really call it out and identify what's happening around us behind simply, you know, I'm angry or she's angry. Anger is just one description of a range of emotions and reactions, and it's often just too easily dismissed. So speaking in terms of, you know, cause of an outcome can sort of take the emotion out of it. We can do this for ourselves, but we can also do it when raising awareness about other women's treatment. So when we hear somebody being called a, you know, B word or um, a woman being called crazy, it's sort of up to us to ask why, not just why would you characterize her response in such a reductive way? But also, why do you think she responded that way? You know, was it because she was frustrated or undermined or betrayed? And this type of questioning can sort of broaden people's view beyond their own biases. And it can build empathy where we start to think of people as, you know, complicated humans responding to their environments. And importantly, we can sometimes see that their reaction was likely warranted, maybe cliched at this point, but I still think it's effective to try to imagine the scenario with the genders reversed. You know, would we be as appalled by this display of anger if it had been displayed by a man? It's also important to speak of these things in terms of your observations and understandings rather than speaking on behalf of others or making assertions that, you know, people can just easily reject. It's hard to reject your observation because it is what it is. You know, when there's a recurring issue, I think we can call out our own observation and ask others to start paying attention to see if they notice it too. And you'll usually get some pushback at first because people kind of have been blind to it due to bias. But once you've planted that seed... People will often quietly start to take notice. Before we listen to what happened at the end of the story, Erica, what would you have done if you were in her steel-toed boot? It's definitely hard to say since so much of it depends on historical context and, you know, the, the team dynamics that we don't have a window into right here. But I have faced strikingly similar situations in the past, and I've handled them kind of in different ways. So in one situation, the individual saying no to my instruction, you know, it was in front of a crowd. They thought that we were on good terms and that we were kind of buddies and he was still testing me like this was a test and he was trying to show the rest of the crew that he could get away with that and that he sort of held special standing Um, and in that moment I was angry and I was hurt and I, I was embarrassed but I knew that everyone was watching for my reaction so I told him that I realized he thought he was being funny but it was not and that I expected better from him and I told him that we didn't have time for games so to go ahead and get on with it and he did 
And I was in that moment acknowledging the situation, acknowledging what he thought was going to happen, and then reframing this as not just wasting my time, but wasting the entire team's time. And in a different situation that was much more openly hostile, I had an employee start walking away from me as I was giving instructions. And I said, please do not walk away while I'm speaking. Like, that's incredibly rude. I assure you I will not come chasing after you. Um, And in this situation, he was probably hoping that I would just stand there kind of dumbfounded, which I think, you know, in the story we just listened to. To, I think that that's probably what they were hoping for and to show the whole team, you know, that we could be ignored. And I don't think he expected that I would then openly acknowledge what was happening and then hold him accountable in front of his peers for this, you know, unprofessional behavior. So in this particular scenario that we just heard, I'd I probably highlight in front of the entire team that there's a reason that we do emergency drills and it's for the safety of the entire group. And I'd point out that this type of behavior threatens you know, the safety and cohesiveness of the entire group and is wasting everyone's time. And then I'd, you know, reaffirm my expectations of professional conduct and ask, you know, ask for confirmation that everyone here was willing to behave as professional and put that on them to kind of step up. Yeah, well, that's a great answer. Let's hear what she did. So at this point, I stopped everyone and said, okay, everyone needs to listen up. During lifeboat drills, I am in charge. I assign the tasks to you. You are here to assist as directed. You don't say no when given a task unless you have a valid reason like an injury. Are we clear? Everyone nodded in agreement. I looked at Mr. No number two and said, are we clear? He nodded yes and proceeded to crank the boat home. But as soon as everyone was dismissed from the drill, the first guy who cussed at me went straight to the captain. The captain backed me up 100%. And he made it clear that if someone said no to an officer in charge again, they will be fired. The captain said that the way I handled the situation was exactly correct and said that if anyone ever refuses an order from an officer in charge, it should be reported to him right away. Her captain had her back. He took an approach that as an officer, she should be respected. But what if that captain had ignored handling this situation? What if he had played it off like it was no big deal? How do you think things would have been different? And what should she do, especially if the problem persists? So that's a really tricky scenario. And frankly, I've been in situations in which my authority was openly undermined by my leaders. And in some cases, it can be resolved through, you know, an ongoing dialogue with those leaders so that you can help them understand how by not having your back, it threatens the entire hierarchy. It really sets a dangerous precedent, especially in a high-risk environment like offshore. That doesn't mean that you'll get through to them, though. And no, the onus should not have to be on you to kind of enlighten your leaders. But again, we're dealing in reality and being effective. I think in cases where you don't get through to the leaders... It's oftentimes because they actually feel threatened by you. And we can acknowledge that. Um, Sometimes you can work through the invisible org chart that we've mentioned. uh, If you have good working relationships established with those in the organization who are respected and trusted, even if they don't have the title, you can, you know, let them know that you realize people look up to them and you'd appreciate their support in tamping down some of these, you know, types of behaviors behind the scenes because, frankly, it fosters some toxic team dynamics. Honestly, though, if your hierarchy and your leadership don't have your back and if you don't have the support within the organization, it can just make for a very rough work environment. And I would start charting a path to change that situation and maybe find a new work environment. Yeah. 
I agree. Every now and then I speak with a woman who is not in a good situation. She's not supported by supervisors on board and encourage her to maybe look for other opportunities. So before we end, do you have any last thoughts on this scenario? Well, I just want to give a shout out to our protagonist here because I think she handled this like a champ. She kept her wits about her. It appears that she really understood exactly what was happening. So that's probably one of the reasons it made her so angry because she understood the underlying, you know, game that was being played. And once that second person declined, it feels like she understood the broader implications for not just her, but also the team. And then she was able to use that as a starting point to establish her expectations and kind of solicit that commitment from the group. I'm glad that in this case, the captain had her back. However, even if he hadn't had her back, I I still think it's clear she would have garnered a lot of respect from the broader group just for her very handling of the situation. And ironically, she might have ended up in a better position after the fact than before, which is often the case when we're tested in these types of scenarios. One last question for you. So you have a podcast and you have a website. How can people contact you and learn more? Yeah, we do have a website and a podcast and our podcast is on all of the major streaming platforms and you can also find it on our website. So www.twopeersconsulting.com. It's T-W-O-P-I-E-R-S. And we have all of our podcasts listed with transcription and we're also on all of the social media platforms. So LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Thanks so much, Erica, for coming on the Women Offshore podcast. Thanks for having me. It's been great. Thanks for tuning in to the Women Offshore Podcast. This has been episode 27. What did you think of the show? Leave a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. Additionally, if you want to propel Women Offshore forward, please visit womenoffshore.org or womenoffshore.shop. Make a donation or purchase some swag. Until next time, stay safe out there and I'll talk to you soon.